0: I'm Kara. I am speaking today as a continuation of our sermon series on the blood for Lent, which is coming to a close, Palm Sunday. We have Easter next week, Good Friday service. Um, So today we are speaking on communion. So I've titled it Take, Eat, and Drink. And we're going to speak, we're going to talk about the blood of Christ and the body of Christ and um, a little bit about that weird concept we never talk about, which is like we come to the communion table to like take and eat of our God. And what does that mean? Um, Yeah, so I'm excited. So I'm going to start by by reading um, a passage and then we'll just jump right in. So we'll throw that, that up on the screen there and read together. So this is Jesus speaking and he says to the Jews, only insofar as you eat and drink flesh and blood, the flesh and blood of the son of man, do you have life within you? The one who brings a hearty appetite to this eating and drinking has eternal life and will be fit and ready for the final day. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. By eating my flesh and drinking my blood, you enter into me and I into you. In the same way that the fully alive Father sent me and I live because of him, So the one who makes a meal of me lives because of me. This is the bread from heaven. Your ancestors ate bread and later died. Whoever eats this bread will live always. Now, speaking of awkward sermon introductions, how weird to be there as a Jew listening, and Jesus comes out with this. Eat me. Now, for the Jews, that was super offensive, and we're going to talk about that. And we're going to start by talking about what he means by the blood. We're going to talk about the blood of the lamb. And then we're going to talk about um, Jesus' body as the bread of life and then kind of end at the communion table together. So the blood of the lamb first. You can't talk about the blood of Christ without talking about Jewish culture because, one, Jesus was a Jew. He's very Jewish. Everything he teaches about is through a Jewish perspective on the world. And for Jews, like we've talked about a bunch of times throughout this sermon series, um, the blood was where the life is. So the Israelites throughout the Old Testament, you can see they practiced an animal sacrificial system to atone for their sins. So the innocent blood of the animal, where the the life of the animal was held, was shed in order to cancel the guilt or the debt of a person. And it was a system of life for life. So there's a presupposition there that there's a right and a wrong way to live. And somebody or something always paid for wrongdoing. And the prime example in the Old Testament is is um, an event that predates Israel and it goes all the way back to Exodus when the Jews were enslaved in Egypt Um, and it has to do with the Passover lamb which many of us are familiar with Um, and that story in Exodus begins with the Hebrew people being enslaved by the Egyptians and they're crying out to God for help and God answers and he comes to his people to set them free and he does it by sending 10 plagues upon Egypt and Pharaoh ignores the first nine, and then the tenth breaks him. And the tenth plague is the death of the firstborn. Even the animals, even the Hebrews, Egyptians, everyone, animals, people alike, lose their firstborn child. Um, was it firstborn sons, Nikala? It was firstborn sons. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> Lost their firstborn sons, their daughters were safe. I suppose I like that part of it. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Back to my sermon notes. Okay. So everyone is going, everyone's going to lose their firstborn son. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're in Egypt, you're losing your firstborn son. But God creates a way for Israel to be saved, assuming they follow very specific instructions. And it's called the Passover. And by it, God comes and he says, hey, I will pass over you. When the angel of death comes and sweeps through Egypt, I will pass over you. And I will not kill your firstborn sons if you follow these instructions, which are kind of weird. So the instructions are this. They're to slaughter a lamb or a goat. Interesting. Right, Nikayla? <laughs> it's just fact checking with Nikayla in the front row. Okay. They're to slaughter a lamb or a goat, and this, this lamb or goat was called the Paschal lamb or the Passover lamb, and, and there were very specific things about this lamb that mattered. So it was one year old, and it was to have absolutely no defects. Nothing could be wrong with its body. They were to slaughter it at twilight without breaking its bones, and then they would boil it, eat it, take the blood. Now they would paint their doorframes with the blood. And God said, if you do this, when I see the blood over your doorframe, I will pass over you, meaning I'm not gonna kill you. I will not enter that house and take the firstborn son. And there was one last instruction. Well, there were some other instructions, but one more important instruction was you have to eat this um, Passover lamb in a certain way. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste, it's the Lord's Passover. And by that, God was saying, by the blood of the lamb, you're gonna be delivered. So not only will you not die when the angel of death sweeps through Egypt, but also the Pharaoh is going to let you go. So you need to be dressed for travel, basically, because he's gonna say, get out, and they will go. So um, it happens as God says, the Hebrews paint their door frames, the angel of death sweeps through Egypt and kills firstborn sons all throughout the land. Pharaoh is heartbroken, grief-stricken, and says, get out, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And the Hebrews flee following Moses. And it begins, it's, it's the birth of a nation. They come out of Egypt, and they go into the desert, and eventually God leads them into the promised land, and it is um, the beginning of Israel, as God has promised. And after Exodus, The Hebrews are commanded to continue celebrating Passover every year, so it is an annual remembrance. Now what they're remembering is that the blood of the lamb was shed, and they remember that it was God's atonement and his deliverance that brought them from Egypt. Now, also in the Passover, they ate unleavened bread, and for Jews, in Jewish culture, the leaven represented sin. So the absence of leaven in that bread that they ate during the Passover was represented the absence of sin, and it, and it was representing how the blood of the atoning lamb allowed them to escape death at the hands of their oppressors in Egypt. Now, there's one other thing. They also ate that bread because, just like they had to be dressed to flee, They didn't have time for the yeast to rise in the bread. So they they baked bread without leaven so that it would be ready to go and they could leave as quickly as possible when Pharaoh said to go. Now, fast forward to Jesus because the Passover and the Paschal lamb are hugely significant because the Last Supper is the Passover supper, which I think we know. Um, Jews were gathering in Jerusalem for the Jewish feast and that's why Jesus came with his disciples. And they were remembering, just like they had every year for hundreds of years, Israel was remembering or reenacting God's saving work of what he had done in the past. They were remembering that the innocent blood of the lamb exchanged life for life, delivered them from Egypt and from death. But what they didn't know is that they were also foreshadowing. So the Passover was remembering or recalling what happened in the past, but they're also foreshadowing or foretelling God's saving work in the future where the innocent blood of the Lamb of God would deliver them eternally from sin and death. But Jesus knows. So on Palm Sunday, he comes into town and is met with rejoicing crowds who are super excited thinking, hey, this is the king who's gonna deliver us from the Roman Empire, but Jesus comes as the Lamb who's gonna be slain in a week in order to wipe away his people's sins. Now, throughout scripture, he is foretold as that Lamb of God Um, In Isaiah 53, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And when a Jew would have been reading this passage, they're hearing um, parallels to the Passover lamb. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth." Um, In the New Testament, it gets even more direct, like when his cousin John sees him for the first time, he goes, hey, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which for Jews would mean a lot more. The Lamb of God would be a much more significant phrase than in an evangelical culture. When we're outside of the animal sacrifice system, we don't celebrate Passover anymore. And then even when Jesus dies, he dies as the paschal lamb. So just like the Passover lamb, Jesus had no broken bones, and the authors made sure to note of that. Um, So it was common practice that centurions would come and break your legs if you were crucified, because you would like push up on your legs to breathe as your lungs filled with fluids, but they wanted you dead by the end of the day. So they'd break your legs so you couldn't push up and you'd suffocate to death. And they did that to the men on both sides of Jesus, but they didn't to Jesus because he was already dead. So Jesus had no broken bones, which is significant because the lamb hundreds of years before was foretelling how Jesus would die. Um, Like the Paschal lamb, Jesus had no defect. He was without sin. He was perfect. And that's kind of weird. Like in Exodus, don't you think the Jews were like, what does it matter if the lamb has defect or not? It's going to be dead. But it mattered because that lamb was a prophecy in and of itself foretelling Jesus, the lamb of God, who had to be perfect and slain for the sins of many, a life for a life. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that Passover lamb. He is that lamb, but it's that lamb in its fullness. He's that lamb once and for all, for eternity, who came to set his people free from slavery with his death. So it's Jesus' blood that's painted over the door frames of our lives, so that the angel of death passes over us. And it's his death blood that's our salvation, and it's the life in his blood that flows in our veins. So that's the blood of the lamb. Jesus says to drink his blood. This is my blood, he said, drink it. Now let's talk about the bread from heaven. Because bread is also super significant in Jewish history. And like we touched on before, bread was central in the Passover. Unleavened bread meant freedom from sin or death. And remember, every year with the Passover, Israel was remembering that they were freed from death in Egypt but they're also remembering every year as they partake in this unleavened bread that they were still slaves to sin and death. Like they know that. And the unleavened bread of Passover was a reminder of Israel's shortcomings for them, of their need for a Messiah. Now later in Exodus, bread becomes even more important. So the the Hebrews, they flee Egypt, they celebrate as they cross the sea on dry land, they come to the other side, and life actually kind of sucks, which is like relatable, you know, you 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 meet Jesus and it's this mountaintop experience and you're so hyped up on, on what life's going to be. And then you arrive in the desert and in the day to day and the grind and the disappointment of still living in a broken world. And you kind of get a bit jaded and you start to yell and gripe and moan. And that's where Israel's at in the desert. They're like, we're hungry. We're scared. We don't know where you are. And it would have been better if we stayed in Egypt. And so God responds quite graciously to their cries for help by sending manna and quail and it literally falls from the sky every night to sustain them. And it tasted like wafers made of honey, scriptures say. And you were only allowed to collect enough for one day. And if you collected too much, you'd wake up the next morning, and it was full of maggots and it smelled bad because it had gone, gone bad. And there was only one exception and it was the Sabbath. So the day before Sabbath, they were allowed to collect enough for two days so that they could rest on the Sabbath day. And so God was saying, I'm going to provide for you. Here's some bread, here's some meat, but you have to depend on me daily. Every single day, you're not allowed to hoard. You need me every day to sustain you. So for Israel, bread became hugely symbolic for them. It was survival, it was sustenance, it was salvation. And even going forward from when God delivered them from the desert into the promised land, bread represented God's faithfulness and his provision. So it's no wonder that bread was pretty integral to Jewish feasts and religious ceremonies. I found when I was preparing for the sermon that, you know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Well, apparently Bethlehem means literally house of bread. So Jesus was born in a bakery and he's the loaf. (laughs) I thought that was so cool. (laughs) But Jesus is the bread. So Jesus declares it himself. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes me will never be thirsty. And later in his teaching, he gets even more specific and he calls himself manna from heaven. He says, your ancestors ate the manna bread in the desert and died. But now here is bread that truly comes down from heaven. Anyone eating this bread will not die ever. I am the bread, living bread who came down out of heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live and forever. The bread that I present to the world so that it can eat and live is myself, this flesh and blood self. And Jesus' point is that the manna that God gave to Israel in the desert that rained down from heaven was a foreshadowing of the Messiah who was to come. So Israel ate manna daily. It nourished them. It sustained them. It saved their lives. And then Jesus comes and says, I am that bread from heaven. Take and eat. And in doing so, Jesus is declaring to the Jews who are listening and to us, I'm the bread that nourishes my people i'm the food that will sustain you in the desert i'm the manna that will protect the lives of my own and then we arrive at the passover meal where jesus takes the bread breaks it and says this is my body broken for you and jesus takes the wine saying this is my blood of the covenant poured out for you and this is where things get weird because We can talk about the cultural significance of the body and the blood in Judaism and later in Christianity, but Jesus takes it to a whole new level that's new to the Jews by saying, eat me. Because before, Jesus provided bread to eat, but now he's not just providing bread, he's saying, hey, I'm the bread, eat me. And he's saying, you don't have to slaughter a lamb anymore. Actually, um, my blood is the sacrificial blood and you have to drink me. You can imagine all the Jews in the room being like, oh my gosh, this man is crazy, where's the closest door? And this is where things get greater than they ever were. They're more intimate than Israel's ever known. They're, no, they're more awkward for us than we've ever known before with Jesus and in his teachings. Because previously, everything that's happened that God has provided for his people in terms of the Passover lamb, in terms of the manna, it's all been temporal. Right, the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed every year. And Israel remembered that God had delivered them from slavery, but even though they made those sacrifices, they still sinned and they were still dying. So they were still slaves to something far greater, maybe not Egypt anymore, but certainly to sin and death. They were suffering from it. They were perpetuating other people's suffering from it. And so do we. And before Jesus, similarly with the manna from heaven, it met the needs of Israel temporarily, but they were still hungry. Going forward, like there's a hunger in the heart of humanity for wholeness and for understanding and for love. And we all crave those things within the deepest places of ourselves. And there's so much need and longing. And Jesus comes and he says, Take, eat, take, drink. And that's his answer. And it's interesting because, like the nature of food itself, Jesus' answer, even though it's eternal and his sacrifice was once for all, it's still like a daily sustenance in our lives. So what does it mean then to ingest Jesus? I think this is the most critical part because if he's saying, I'm your savior, I'm your nourisher, I will atone you, I will make you whole, I will give you life, but you just have to like eat and drink of me. Like we kind of need to know what that means. And honestly, we, I, I often don't know what that means and it matters. And so I want to reflect on that a little bit as we close today. And I think to ingest Jesus is to invite God into ourselves, just like the food that we eat breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces until it's in the very blood that flows in our veins. Jesus is saying, the way in which you ingest me, it's, it's intimate and vulnerable because I'm in your very innermost being. And it's mysterious and it's mystical as God becomes part of us within us in the parts that we know, that we don't know, that we love, that we hate, the deep places, the shallow places, God is coming to dwell within the wholeness of ourselves as we partake in the bread and the wine. And it's in this indwelling that God fills our insatiable hunger that exists in all of our hearts. And it's in this indwelling that we're made whole. But again, I just kept coming back to this week to like, how, how do we actually do that? What does that actually look like? Cause it's super easy to be like, look at these scriptures. Ta-da. I looked at Wikipedia. Ta-da. Okay. Goodbye. Good luck welcoming God into your lives. But it's actually really difficult. And it was a little bit, I I feel conscientious talking about this because it's super easy from the front to sound like you, like I have my life together and I know what it means to welcome God into me. And now I will show you, but I'm going to offer what I have for my life to hopefully um, make ourselves even more hungry for more. To inspire you in ways in which you can be hungry and partake in the bread and drink of the wine um, in the hopes that as a church family, we can welcome more of God into our innermost beings. So I reflected, what are ways in my life where I eat the bread of God and I drink of his wine in my life? And one of them is like not profound at all. It's it's just a playlist on Spotify that I have called prayers. Um, in my life, I've always felt like I connect with God through song, I feel like I can, I can hear Him speak to me through song. I feel like I can pray more easily through song, and I feel like that's pretty common of our generation. I'm not unique in that way. Um, and recently, um, I had a mentor encourage me to, to start to sing as I go about my life because I find quiet times and devotions very difficult. I'm tired, as many of us are, and so I made a playlist and and. There are melodies that I love, but even more important, the the words of the songs are about who God is and reminders of who I am, and they're they're prayers that I can join in praying along with. And so I listen through the day, the kids know those songs as mom's prayers and they're getting pretty sick of them. Um, But they invite God into my daily rhythms. And I also feel like as I listen to them, I can feel God inviting me to be with him as I go about my day. And I've often thought about the passage from Romans 8 which says, we don't know what we ought to pray, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And I feel like there's so much grace in that passage for how we take and eat of God, because God is searching our hearts even when we, when we don't know what's in our hearts to say. And God is helping us in our weakness and the spirit himself intercedes through wordless groans. And if God can pray through groans, like what do we really know about prayer? Like we can pray through groaning. We can pray through our tears and through our laughter and through sharing stories. We can pray through song. And when I listen and sing, I do feel wholeness grow. I feel like there's a conduit that opens for my longings for God and peace and goodness to be shared. And I feel like there's a conduit too for God's longings for peace and goodness to be shared with me. So that Spotify playlist is one way that I take a need of God's body. And and I do experience a growing wholeness within myself. Okay, here's another one. This one will either resonate or you'll you'll think it's weird, but we all talk to ourselves, right? We all have a monologue going on within our head unless we're sleeping. And our thoughts are always ongoing. It's either like a stream of consciousness. It's noticing. It's wondering, worrying, considering, judging, using. And so much so that sometimes when we're alone, we even speak to ourselves, these thoughts that are going on in our head. And I think that the monologue in our heads is actually an intimate dialogue. Um, And I think that we're designed to be having those inner conversations with God. But in the garden, God's voice went silent, or at least our inner ears went um, deaf. But he is there within us, listening to what we are saying, listening to the monologue that's actually a dialogue as we're noticing, wondering, worrying, considering, amusing. We don't even know it, but we are offering those thoughts to him, his quiet presence within us. And I think inviting God into our innermost selves has a lot to do with the practice of retuning our ears to listen for his voice and to notice so much of just noticing that he is listening to us and he's, he's in that secret place within our minds where only God and we dwell together so our thought lives is a place where we can eat and drink of God um, this summer my I've, I've shared quite a few times but but my niece died of a of a genetic condition that they knew of from from in utero Um, And I was really desperate to go to her funeral, but my sister lives in Minnesota, and I forgot about the logistics of having to get Noah a passport in order to get down there on time. So I was rushing to try to get Noah a passport in a pinch um, because he had to come with me, and it was down to the very last day um, for me to actually be able to get it and still go, and I was panicking, absolutely panicking. And suddenly, I remember I was getting into the van to drive to the passport office, and I heard a voice singing in my mind and heart. And the word said, there's nothing to fear, there's nothing to fear, for I am with you always. And the song played on repeat as I drove to the passport office to pick up his passport. And I had like two hours to spare. And I don't think that in singing that to me, God was saying, don't worry, you'll have two hours to spare. I've taken care of everything. Um, I just, that hasn't been my experience of how God interacts in my life. But what i do think is that god was there noticing my anguish and saying notice me i'm here with you i'm here with you i'm sustaining you i'm holding you up notice me and in those moments on that drive i ate and drank of god and i was sustained like israel in the desert long ago so regardless of how you invite god into your life be assured that he longs for you to take and eat we have a king who came triumphantly but he didn't come to party and be crowned in front of the crowds he came to die and he died and he rose again and he ascended to heaven because his kingship is within us he dwells within his people we are his home and he will sustain you he will nourish you and he will make you whole and more whole and more whole and more whole as you invite him deeper and deeper and deeper still And so that brings us to the table where every week we come together to remember that Jesus died and that he didn't die just to die, but he died so that he could live within us and bring us life. It is his blood and his life that flows in our veins that gives us life and helps us overcome death and experience wholeness in this life and in the life to come.